Welcome to the Basketball Index Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor, and today we have guest Tony East. We'll be talking about the state of the Pacers. Tony has uh, quite the resume. He covers the Pacers for Forbes Sports. He works for the NBC television affiliate WTHR out in Indiana and is host of the Locked On Pacers podcast. Tony, that is quite the resume. How are you doing today? Excellent, excellent, excellent. It's my rare month off between the fever and Pacers season, so I'm in a good mood. I'm chip, chippy. You know, I'm excited to talk about the Pacers, as usual. So we were talking a little bit uh, before the podcast. So Tony is former basketball index. He covered the Pacers way back when. And he also was uh, on the basketball index podcast a few years ago. So in a way, I'm sort of following in your footsteps, Tony. I'm, I'm honored to be the, the new host of the, the BBI podcast. Basketball Index back then was way different than it is now. Not not in any sort of way. It was just in its infancy. So it's awesome to see what it's what it's become and the stories it can tell with with grades and numbers. Well, thank you for laying uh, help lay the groundwork. Uh, so let's get into the Pacers. We're talking about the state of the Pacers. Kind of just what's the feeling? What's the buzz around the Pacers this offseason? Yeah, it's an interesting time for the Pacers and following the Pacers because normally going into every season. Their ownership and their expectations are they're going to try to be good or at least be competitive and reach the playoffs and be maybe even more than that. You know, when Victor Oladipo is at his peak or when Paul George is at his peak, it was more than that. But usually that is the baseline expectation from this franchise for probably the last uh, 12, 13 years. This is the first time in that time span that the expectation going into the year is they're not going to make the playoffs, most likely. <laughs> They're going to be a young, developing, building team that will not be as good this year, but should be much, much better because of these steps in future seasons, armed with, you know, 11 players, 25 and younger, maybe 12 now, uh, uh, plus three draft picks this coming draft. Like, they're clearly setting a basis instead of chasing the wins now, which is different for this franchise, and it's, it's a strange buzz. It's a strange feeling in Indiana as, as fans kind of pivot towards figuring out what that looks like, what expectations need to look like, and how this team can grow. All right, so I feel like Miles Turner has been on the trade block since the Obama administration, <laughs> quite honestly. And That's correct. I, you talked about it, it being a rebuilding season. I know he's been rumored in a ton of trades. Um, can you can you kind of shed some light on because this is a really interesting thing about him. There's a lot of fan bases out there that could become Miles Turner fans in the very near future. So <laughs> could you kind of give me a rundown on the player that he is? Yeah, I think since my goodness, since they got Sabonis in the summer of 2017 and even then they had like he wasn't starting his rookie year and they had like Al Jefferson in the mix like. He's basically been a part of trade rumors his whole career. Like, will he be traded for a start if it with PG? Or will he be traded for Hayward? Or is it time to make Sabonis the only five? Always in his career, he's been wrapped up in it. So since the Obama administration is honestly kind of correct, he is a fascinating player because few in the league have his skill set. Uh, but he's still not like a mega impact guy, right? For a center, he's a good shooter, 35% for his career from deep, can space it out. Has more recently in recent seasons gotten a lot better at you know, being confident and, and shot faking that three and putting it on the floor and then finding a shot somewhere else. It's not something he does often, but he can do it. He's fantastic as a rim protector, one of the best in the league in drop coverage and rotating from the weak side at chasing those blocks, sometimes to his detriment on the glass, but most of the time with some level of success. A fantastic rim protector who can space out to about 15 feet defensively with his footwork 
and ability to read the game on the end of the floor. His pick and roll defense in particular is absolutely spectacular. Those areas, he thrives. And in the NBA, where there's a ton of pick and rolls now and threes are important, he has a spot on every team. He is very valuable to the Pacers on both ends of the floor and would be on any team. He also has a lot of ball handling limitations. His shot's been inconsistent. Sometimes he can get caught in the flow of the game and just reverse it without thinking instead of you know making confident decisions. And he can't stretch out and be a four defensively. He's more limited to 15 feet and in, but with the way the NBA's played these days and the skills that are required of centers most of the time, he is very valuable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the data likes him a lot. I'm looking it up right now. He was sixth in D. LeBron, which is our overall defensive metric last season. He only played about 1,200 minutes, not a huge minute sample last year, but then also had a B in our three-point talent shooting grade. So, like you said, kind of fits the role of that modern, you know, like high-end rim protection and, you know, can space the floor. And I feel like uh, teams are... I can understand why he's been on the trade block for so long. You know, like that makes a lot of sense. We're like, that's a pretty valuable thing. I kind of think of like Brooke Lopez as kind of a, a right. player with like a similar, they're not exactly the same player, but just sort of like a similar skill set. Am I, am I kind of on the right track there? For sure. I think Brooke Lopez has a little bit more like functional strength. <laughs> not that he's like miles is strong, but I think Brooke Lopez is better at, you know, getting lower and being better at like physically defending post players down low and a little bit better on the glass. But yes, general zoomed out skill sets, very, very similar players. All right. And then the other player that's been on the trade block, I know they, they've recently acquired him from the Kings, Buddy Heald. I know he has a reputation of a really strong shooter. Can you kind of give the people another kind of thing where he, he might be on a few different teams, maybe come the beginning of the season? Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to watch him on a nightly basis? Well, fortunately, I watch more than just the Pacers because I say that if you only watched Buddy Heald with the Pacers, you would have a very different perception of Buddy Heald than if you watched Buddy Heald with the Kings or even with the Pelicans as a rookie. Like he came to Indiana and immediately like not like evolved, but just not wasn't as mopey like he was with the Kings and was was really a different player. Like his first game with the Pacers, nine rebounds, eight assists. His fourth game with the Pacers, seven assists. He had an, another nine assist game in his ninth game with the Pacers. That followed by a seven and eight assist game. And those aren't like enormous numbers. But if you followed Buddy Heald at all with the Kings, where the most assists he averaged per game in a season was three and a half, seeing him really explode with the Pacers as this passer, as this rebounder, this playmaker who was like a varied player with many skills – was stunning because still right now, I think he's one of the worst defenders in the NBA. You know, he just gets very zeroed in on the ball. His team defense isn't very good. And he's not strong enough or quick enough to be like that. But on offense, he's awesome. Like their offensive rating with him on the floor was over 120, I believe, at times last Whoa. season. Like, he can, yeah, he can really shoot it. Uh, but their defensive rating was also over 120 with him <laughs> in the floor. I think that uh, I got to check PBP stats, which I'm assuming is where most people yank data from. But I believe his on-offs were were insane in that way because very valuable shooter, became a good playmaker for them, like fits in any offensive lineup. But it was just a miserable defensive player for them. And there's a reason his contract is viewed as still a neutral or even negative because while he is a fantastic offensive player that, especially next to Stars as a good shooter, would fit very well. His defense is pretty bad at this stage. That is wild about those assist numbers when he went over there. That that those are those are crazy for Buddy Heald. Yeah. Oh, insane! It, it made no sense. Like he came here, and I, I've said this to a lot of people. Like a lot of players when they get traded, they're like, "Oh, I'm in this new situation. Like I liked my old team, but I'm excited to see what I can do here." Buddy Heald got traded, and he was like, "Yeah, I hated it there. <laughs> I'm really excited. I'm really excited to be somewhere else." And uh, this is per PBP stats, Wowie uh, data. 
Uh, with Buddy Heald on the floor, the Pacers had a 121 offensive rating in 925 minutes and a 122 defensive rating so uh fantastic offensive player their their offensive rating with him on was 11 points better than with him off but their defensive rating was also substantially worse <laughs> with him on than off so exactly what you expect the reputation of buddy Hield to bring to a team wow those are those are pretty crazy numbers um okay so i kind of okay i want to get your opinion let's say you're the pacers gm here for the next two minutes there has been a, a rumor trade to the lakers of Miles Turner and Buddy Heald for Russell Westbrook and two first round picks. If you're the GM, do you pull the trigger on that? Yeah, I think the protections matter a lot. Like I talked to Tim, uh, the founder of the B-Ball Index, about this on Locked On Pacers a couple weeks ago. But like, you know, one unprotected pick would have a ton of value because you you can do a lot with that. That could become a lot of things versus two like lottery protected picks. What do you value more? And that's a lot of random nuance to say that the protections would matter to me in this trade. But, you know, I view Buddy Heald. First of all, he'd fit better on the Lakers with LeBron and AD than he would with the Pacers, but it's basically a neutral value player. Like, he is not worth a first-round pick on his own. I think Miles Turner is worth about a first-round pick, maybe a little bit more than that, but he hasn't been traded yet with about that value for years. So getting two firsts for those guys I think is good value. And then Westbrook's contract is a negative at that stage, so does that offset getting two firsts for players that are worth one first? I normally would zoom out and say maybe not, but the Pacers team building context where, you know, their team's already pretty set in stone. They're, they're leaning in on youth and they're below the salary floor. Making this trade would help them get closer to that floor. They have to hit. They have to pay out that amount of salary this season no matter what. It might end up being worth it to them if the protections are right or agreeable to them. So I think I would do that if the protections were light enough, but I understand why the Pacers would want to haggle on that sort of thing, given that they could, if, if Heald continues to play well for them, for example, get value for both of those guys independent of taking back $47 million. So do you think, well, one, I like, I like that answer because I'm a Lakers fan. So <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And then two, do you think both these guys get moved by the trade deadline this year? Uh, Turner, almost certainly, if he doesn't sign an extension, mostly because he's on an expiring deal, right? They just can't lose him for nothing as has happened for years and years and years in the NBA. Like this is such a small scale example, but like, you know, it's, it's stunning when guys like Gary Harris and Terrence Ross don't get traded for these reasons. Like they're not amazing players, but when you're on an expiring deal, you have to sniff out these sort of things. So Turner, I think is, is pretty certainly going to get moved this year, unless they're way exceeding expectations or he signs an extension, Buddy he has got two years left. Him and Tyrese are close since they played together for so long. He does help them on offense in the ways I described earlier. So maybe he makes it through this year. He plays pretty well in a Carlisle system as well, as evidenced by many of his stats. But again, I think he's better on a contender than the Pacers. And I think it's possible that leads to him getting dealt. All right. Uh, moving on, Tyrese Halliburton. He got moved over in the Sabonis trade last year. He was kind of the centerpiece of that trade. And he has been a scorching hot player to talk about, especially in analytic circles. Um, can you kind of sell me on him? Cause I'm not quite as high. I'll give the people at home just like a, just a real basic. He's 22 years old. He's going to be going into his third season, uh, above average efficiency, both years scoring double digit numbers. So something like kind of, you get that usage under understanding of like, you know, he is scoring, he is playing. Uh, it is efficient. The big negative for me is that his rim shot creation is 51st percentile in the league, which is uh, for people really projecting him as a cornerstone player, it, there are a few players that are, I would say, 
above average offensive players that don't get to the rim all the time. But that is a, a stat that is a pretty good indicator of that. So I am someone that isn't quite as high on Tyrese Halliburton, but there's a lot of people that really like him. So could you, Tony, sell me on him? Welcome to the perfect debate, because I am one of those people who is irrationally high on Tyrese Halliburton. Now, <laughs> some of that is because of per-game stats. B-Ball Index's least favorite thing on planet Earth. <laughs> uh, but in general, guys who – I'm pulling it up right now. I did this research project a while ago. Guys who shoot well from deep and can score and pass at his level early in their career. Okay, here it is. So – here is every player in NBA history who has averaged 15 and 8 in one of the first four years of their careers. Not even crazy numbers, just 15 and 8, and shot over 38% from three-point range in the same season. Mark Price, multi-time All-Star. Uh, Darren Williams, multi-time All-Star. Trey Young, multi-time All-Star. Tim Hardaway, multi-time All-Star. Darius Garland certainly headed that way. And Damon Stoudemire, not multi-time All-Star, the outlier of this list. And the last player would be Tyrese Halliburton, who has now done that two times already in his career. Uh, and he shot 4% better than that from deep and had over a full assist more than that with the Pacers. His combination of skills is extremely unique in that guys who can be a really good threat from long range, I believe uh, on your grades, he is the Pacers' best perimeter shooter or talent-wise, um, can play make the way he does where, you know, especially in transition, he sees the hit-aheads really well. He reads you know two, three levels of the defense with his passing. Uh, that sort of combination of skills is really rare, even if he's not getting all the way to the rim on those drives. And I think that's probably the biggest criticism in his game. And he'll even say that himself. He says all the time, I wasn't aggressive enough. I wasn't hunting enough for that getting all the way to the rim thing. He likes to pull up, you know, from eight feet away or 10 feet away and do a floater that isn't as advantageous of a creation moment or doesn't pass maybe to the right guy. And that will hold back that percentile that you said. But I think in general, his ability to read the game combined with the shot, if he just finds the right level of aggression to mix those skills together perfectly, he's going to be a special, special offensive player. The problem is that his defense is not very good at this stage in time, but I think his offensive package is just so unique and special that he was going to be a very good player one day. Okay, I like that sales pitch. Good sales pitch. How'd I do? I, I like, like that. I think if I was on Shark Tank, I would. Uh, I would at <laughs> least. I would be leaning forward in my seat. I probably would have my fingers <laughs> together like Mr. Burns. And uh, I like what I'm hearing. You're you're kind of you're pulling me in that direction. So my counter to that is I hadn't seen a ton of him on the Kings. Right, just a tiny bit. So I pulled up the tape uh, this morning and I watched some of him. And I, I think one thing to point out is his assist numbers have been very high his first two years in the league, right? And then uh, on the tape, like that's that really pops. Like the vision is is pretty darn good for what's going to be a 22 year old. I, I was impressed. There was quite a few passes where it was like whoa, or like you know, like you rewind it and watch it again. So I think that's something that is just super valuable, right? In the NBA, having high end playmaking. For me, this was sort of the the idea that I left with is he sort of felt like to me maybe a guy like similar to Tyler Hero where they're both they're not huge but they're both pretty good offensive players and I almost feel like if you were to maybe reshape Hero's skill set he he seems a little less aggressive than Hero but he has a lot more vision 
uh, and then the playmaking is obviously a lot higher. He he almost seems like if you were to sort of if you could remold Hero, both those guys don't get to the rim a whole lot into a player that maybe is a little more analytically aligned. Maybe I don't know if that would be the best way to say that, but they're both pretty good shooting threes. They both can score some. They're both offensive oriented players. Both have the ball in their hand a fair amount. Um, I, I kind of see him as a better version of Tyler Hero. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. It seems like the playmaking gap between him and Hero is fairly large, but the scoring gap is similarly large. You know, that that's a, a fair way of putting it. I think I would view his... You know, I think that the vision sort of suggests a, a feel and read of the game that will make him better than Hero, even if they're similar. Does that make sense? Is that a fair count? Yeah, and I, and I think you're definitely right, where there's definitely like the, the, the gap in the playmaking is noticeable. Um, I would say is almost like what I was trying to say is like you were sometimes hero just puts his head down and he decides he's going to shoot the ball where it's like he's not even getting to the rim. He's just decide he's like puts his head down and is like, <laughs> I'm going to shoot a floater. And it's like, I, I've never really seen someone with that mentality. And it's almost like if you could just if you could just like switch that one thing in his brain of like, I'm going to get past the free throw line and then I'm going to fire it to the corner once I draw that defender. Like if you could just make that switch in his head, you would have someone much more like Halliburton, which I think most people, if you gave them, like, you know, those Twitter polls where it's like you can have player A or player B. I think most people would go with Halliburton. But he almost just seemed like, you know, in draft comps where they're like, just give me a player that is sort of like this. That was just something that popped out to me. See, here's another like Halbert almost has the opposite problem of that get past the free throw line, what they're going to do thing. Like just to go back to that list of the eight seasons ever for a first to fourth year player where they average 15, eight and shoot over 38 percent from three. All of them took well over 1000 shots that season, except for Tyrese, who barely even cracked 900. Right. Like he does not look at the rim that much. And that is a big hindrance on the impact you can have when. Even when you're beating your defender, even when you're causing defensive shifts, guys can still sort of hover around their man knowing that you're probably going to whip it out of your hands and pass instead of be looking at the rim. Like that is a big hindrance when your usage is mostly predicated on setting up other guys. There is a limit to what that can be. So, yes, he probably should shoot more and will this season. I think he knows that's a weakness in his game, but that tends to come with a sacrifice of an, of efficiency or of picking the right spot. So finding out what that balance will be for him, like if he gets that number up to – for example, Trey Young's on this list. I mean, he's over 1,500 shots. That's crazy. <laughs> like, if, if Tyrese gets to, like, 1,200 in a season and his efficiency stays the same, yeah, okay, he's way better. He's all of a sudden, like, a crazy good player. But if he gets it up to 1,200 and that, and that three-point percentage falls to 38, 37, and the assist number goes down to seven, you know, how, how much worse is that player? How much better is that player? That's what he'll have to figure out this year, and that's kind of his growth path will lead to me at least. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that's uh, that, that absolutely makes sense. And that's going to be something I'm going to be looking for as I feel like it's really difficult to kind of be that cornerstone player mid rebuild, especially where like yeah, I feel like a lot of the time they're just like, no, chuck it. And you're like, oh, this is the best way to like build a player in the NBA. Just to tell him to close his eyes and put it up. <laughs> well, part two of, of Halliburton growth and, and being a really great player is like he is not a good defender, <laughs> not not a good defensive player right now, which is interesting because I use this example way too much, and it's not a good example, but it's just a discussion point. Ben Simmons came into the league uh, out of LSU, and everyone's like, yeah, this dude is genius. He can see a lot of stuff. His passing is really good. And that eventually translated to Ben Simmons being an awesome defender because he can really read the game, get in the right passing lanes, and he had the size to be a good defender too. Halliburton, it seems like, has the offensive read of the game to be a good 
defender and like be in the right spots and things like that. But he's not. He's not a good defender yet. So maybe that will translate eventually and then he'll have a much stronger two-way impact. But right now, especially at his size that obviously Simmons had, he doesn't. He has not had the defensive impact that he would need to really have a strong, strong stamp instead of just like, oh, this guy's a really good offensive player. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, moving on to uh, rookie last year, Chris Duarte. Um, he had a really solid rookie year. He was one of those players where the knock on him, I feel like coming out, was that he was a little bit older than the other players. He was, I think, 23 in his rookie year. Uh, but at Basketball Index, he was, you know, didn't light the world on fire, but he was above average in a three-point talent grade. He was above average finishing. He was above average uh, playmaking, where, again, didn't dominate in any of these stats, but when you have a player that, and I, I saw him play just a few games, I would love to get your take on him. He just seemed like, uh, it, I don't know, for me, when you have a rookie playing and you're like, this guy seems like he belongs in the NBA, I feel like that's a good feeling. Yeah, he made second team all rookie, the last guy on that team. I think with him, it's really interesting that, you know, like, I, I, I don't know what he is or what he's going to be like. I've always loosely projected him as like, I think this guy's going to be a 3 and D player. I already think he's a good shooter now. Uh, and he's an, a good on-ball defender now. But he's not like super tall, which is like the common type of player to talk about with 3 and D as a wing. I think he's kind of a 3 and D type player. But like you said, he had good moments of finishing last year. His playmaking wasn't awesome, but it certainly improved as the season went on. And he figured out what to do in the paint. Like, it's hard to figure out what he's going to be, but it, it was fascinating, especially for me, because I usually just go, eh, rookies are going to be bad, <laughs> to see him be like a useful and effective player at times last season. Well, yeah, I've actually been digging into the database. Basically, especially on defense, most rookies are like are bleeding points on the defensive end. Yeah. Right. So uh, I don't know. It was just something that kind of stuck out to me with him where it was like, huh, like I normally rookie players aren't just sort of like solid at most things. So I, I just kind of thought that was interesting. Very telling for him, too, that Rick Carlisle, a championship veteran coach, was like five games in the season was like, well, this is our best option on Kevin Durant. All right, Chris, get out there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that says a lot about both Duarte and the Pacers team context last year, <laughs> that it was basically Torrey Craig or Chris Duarte on the superstars a lot of the time. But, yeah, he you know, he he definitely has a well-rounded game, I think. And it'll be interesting to see how it develops, because like. For sure, to me at least, he's going to be a 3 and D player. I already said that, but you know, that's, that's a valuable on its own. So can he be more than that? Where can he develop this season? Those are the big kind of questions I have for him, especially as you know now he's not even like the, the cool young thing for the team anymore. Like it's, it's Halliburton now. How does he fit in around their other star that they just acquired? Uh, and then wrapping up, last question. Uh, expectations for the season. Like how do you – I know we talked about they're not really in the – they're not in the win now mode. But is there anything you think in particular you'd like to see, whether it's developing players or style, maybe players fitting together? Like what what are some realistic expectations for this team that you'd like to see? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously the the three headed backcourt trio, Duarte, Mather and Halberton, do they look good together? How do they jive? What skills do they have that really pop off the page and how do they develop as the season goes on, will be sort of the expectation and the story of this Pacers season. Like, they have some nice young frontcourt players. Isaiah Jackson looks like he's going to be pretty talented, for example. Uh, Jalen Smith's going to start for them this year. We'll see what he ends up turning out to be. But those three guys in the backcourt, if they gel, if their skills look really complimentary, if any of them look like they have the potential to be something awesome, that's sort of the story of the season. I think the expectation is that one of them will look like a guy who can kind of lead this team through this weird transition they're going through that isn't really something, again, that this franchise does very often. From last year when they went in with an all-star in Sabonis and some key players around him trying to be good and make the postseason to, okay, 
what are we? They're, they're kind of a blank slate, and the expectation being that one of those guys, particularly Halberton, can step up and sort of start drawing what the Pacers will look like when they are back in the postseason for their next next iteration of good Pacers basketball. All right, Tony, thank you for the state of the Pacers. We touched on Miles Turner, Buddy Heald, what their skill sets look like. They could be on the move soon. Tyrese Halliburton, hopefully the cornerstone for years to come. Tony East from the Locked on Pacers podcast. Again, thank you for joining me on the show. Do you have anything else you'd like to plug? I do not, Taylor. Thank you. You aired out, you aired it out all perfectly. <laughs> all right. My name's Taylor, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Basketball Index podcast. <laughs>